Welcome to College App 101. I'm your host, Dr. Riley. Succeeding in high school is challenging, and applying to college is overwhelming. I hope my comments here ease the tension you may feel. It will benefit you to think like a college admissions counselor. She's a lady who will read your application to the College of Charleston, or Furman. He's the guy who will handle your application to Drake or Marquette. I've worked with many such professionals. They're great people and interested in helping you apply to their school. If it is true that the student-teacher bond is the most important relationship in the academic life of a high school student, then the same thing can be said about the professor-student relationship. Put differently, high school students, the most important people in your schooling are your teachers. Do everything you can to stay in their good graces. When you arrive at college, treat your professors the same way. There will be many professionals that you'll interact with in college. Academic advisors, financial aid officers, your RA or resident advisor. That's the person who oversees your dorm floor. But your professors are the most important. So what can you expect in your professors? The U.S. Department of Education recognizes some 4,000 institutions of higher education. That means there's a lot of variety within U.S. colleges. When you add colleges in Canada, England, and other English-speaking countries, and American students enroll in colleges overseas every year, there's even more variety. For my purposes today, on the basis of my experience as a professor, I'd like to identify three types of professors you may have when you go to college this fall, if you're in the high school class of 2023, next fall if you're, in the, if you're a current high school junior, and so forth. The first type is Professor A. A is for adjunct, an adjunct faculty member. This professor works part-time for a college, teaching one or two classes each term, semester or quarter. Maybe they're a retired professor, maybe a retired school teacher with a master's degree, maybe a graduate student, but they're only part-time teaching faculty. The second type is Professor V. V is for visiting. A visiting professor is a full-time professor that is temporarily at your college, hence visiting. Perhaps their contract is for the year, maybe more, but in time they will leave your school, hopefully for a permanent position. Which leads me to the third type, Professor P. P is for permanent. A permanent professor is typically called an assistant, associate, or full professor, depending on their tenure status. In my opinion, recent PhDs who just finished graduate school and seek employment at a college want a permanent position. In case you're wondering, no type of professor is better or worse than the others. There are caring, devoted, selfless, gifted professors within each category. And there are less than agreeable, self-absorbed faculty members in each category as well. My appointment as a faculty member at Xavier University in Cincinnati was initially Professor A, adjunct, and then Professor V, visiting. The lion's share of my classes at Xavier were conducted in Alter Hall, the old pre-renovation Alter Hall. Beautiful, polished stone hallway floors, carpeted classrooms, large but inefficient air conditioning units that struggled to cool a room in the early fall semester heat. About half my classes there in Alter Hall were within the field of biblical studies, Pentateuch, Psalms and Wisdom Literature, 
Old Testament prophets. While the majority of the Bible is understandable, all things considered, inevitably my students occasionally found sections confusing and raised questions in class. For example, the book of Exodus features arguably the most famous story in the first part of the Bible. That part is known as the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. The famous story is the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery under the leadership of the prophet Moses. There's a puzzling section in Exodus chapter 4 where God attempts to put Moses to death. It seems strange because Moses is set forth really as God's right-hand man. Students always asked why would God attempt to kill his prophet? I always had what I considered to be reasonable a reasonable explanation of Exodus 4. But beyond that, there are, here and there, unclear parts that remain a mystery to those of us who read, study, and specialize in the Bible thousands of years after it was written. For example, there's this repeated word in the book of Psalms. The word is the Hebrew word selah. Interpreters and researchers, including yours truly, don't know the original intent of this word. So many English translations simply put it into English characters in their rendering of the book of Psalms. All this to say there's mystery to a few parts of, to a few parts and words in the Bible and try as I may to understand and explain them to my students, sometimes I simply have to confess to my classes, I don't know. And this is difficult for me. My temperament, disposition and personality crave clear, cut and dried answers. When a question is unanswered, my knee-jerk reaction is frustration. This is the time of year when seniors hear from colleges they applied to for admission, and inevitably there's some mystery in the results. This mystery is evident in questions like, why did I win admission to my dream school, but my best friend, who's more qualified, didn't? Or, my family demonstrates vast financial need on our FAFSA. We submitted, it, we submitted it by my college's financial aid deadline, so why is my financial aid package so lean? How am I supposed to afford tuition, fees, room, board, and my other expenses? Or, my friends have been admitted to their first choice colleges, but I was rejected. Why? What am I supposed to do? If these questions characterize you or your experience, I encourage you to embrace the mystery. Choose contentment in not knowing. You do this by keeping your eyes open, looking for wonder along the way. Because in moments of uncertainty, stress, and difficulty, you never know what's going to happen to unravel your problems or answer your questions. There are forces at work and decisions made, decisions which are outside your control and you never know what will happen. As a starting point, I encourage you, your parent or guardian, to meet with your school guidance counselor to discuss options. These options come to mind immediately. Appeal the, admission decisions, appeal the admissions decision of your college. If your college permits this, it will be spelled out on their website. Another option, consider a gap year. This means you would take the year immediately following senior year off from college. Yes, you need, to re you need to reapply to college, but statistically, the older you are, when you start college, the less regrets you have about your college choices. Young adults who are a bit older are more confident and secure in their college decisions than people fresh out of high school. A third option, 
If your college has rolling admissions, start in your local community college this fall and seek to transfer in the spring. If your chief problem is money, and all I can say is welcome to the club, if your chief problem is money, what part-time job or jobs can you pick up after school and on the weekends to start earning and saving cash? You have much more control over how much money you earn and save than the money a college will award you in a financial aid package. I know one senior who did everything right, won admission to his first choice college, but received very little in the financial aid package. For financial reasons, he was stressed for a few months between spring senior year and starting college. I can tell you, eventually his situation fully worked itself out and he's now in graduate school. It's understandable that you may be confused by your admissions results or financial aid packages. Like my biblical study students, you may have questions that no one can answer right now. It's okay. Keep your eyes open. Keep moving down the path. You never know the wonder that will reveal itself along the way. For those of us in the field of biblical studies, 2011 was a special year. Before the sun rose on 2011, I anticipated its coming, and I told my students, principally at Xavier, that it was going to be a big year. I said, watch out, there will be parties of celebration, and sure enough, there were. What's more is the party started early in 2010, before 2011. The celebration centered on the 400th anniversary of the publication of a very influential English translation of the Bible. I'm speaking about the King James Bible. It was published in 1611. Known mainly as the authorized version in England, the influence of the King James Bible on religion, the arts, and literature is vast. As far as English translations of the Bible are concerned, the King James is a work of art. Its translators skillfully capture the meaning of the Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic texts and put forth that meaning in artistic style. On reflection, most Bible classes I ever taught at the university level had at least one student who read from the King James, which makes sense who knows how many millions of copies of the King James Bible have been sold over the centuries. My research into this particular English Bible translation indicates the scholars who did the actual translating are anonymous. Other than King James himself and a handful of church authorities and bishops, whose names I do know, the translation committee who produced the translation is unknown. But this doesn't, make, but this doesn't take away from its influence on literature and the arts. Another extremely influential force in English literature and the arts, from around the same time of the King James Bible's publication, is William Shakespeare. My favorite historian, a fellow called Paul Johnson, devotes an entire chapter to Shakespeare in Johnson's book called Creators, from Chaucer and Durer to Picasso and Disney. Johnson maintains Shakespeare's Hamlet in terms of, of artistic genius dwarfs the works of Leonardo, Michelangelo, Beethoven, Mozart, Dante, and Goethe. Whether or not Johnson's correct about Hamlet, no one can gainsay Shakespeare's prowess and influence in writing, literature, and the arts. Shakespeare was 46 years old in 1611, the year of the publication of the King James Version. I should underscore the number 46 is important here. 
My personal copy of the King James Bible was printed by Oxford University Press in 1997. To prove what I'm about to explain to you, I recently paid a visit to my bookcase, pulled off my King James Bible, opened it to the book of Psalms, and found Psalm 46. Again, Shakespeare was 46 years old in 1611. The Psalms are written in poetry, so I found verse 1 and counted 46 English words from the beginning of the verse 1 poetry toward the end. The 46th word is shake. I did the same thing from the end toward the beginning. I counted from the end toward the beginning of, of the Psalm, 46 English words. The 46th word is spear. 46 words from the beginning, shake. 46 words from the end, spear. Shake and spear, Shakespeare. By the way, to make this little exercise work, in my counting of 46 English words, I have to skip over a Hebrew word present in the Psalm 46 English translation. That Hebrew word is selah, which I mentioned a few minutes ago as one of the meaning uncertain words in the Bible. The original 1611 King James Version has gone through many revisions over the centuries, so I searched for a digital copy of an actual 1611 King James Bible. As near as I can tell, I found one, went through the aforesaid word counting exercise, and confirmed the same thing. Except spear in the 1611 version is spelled the same way Shakespeare spells the spear in his name, S-P-E-A-R-E. Modern versions of the King James spell it the way it appears in current English, S-P-E-A-R. Are shake and spear, 46 words from the beginning, and 46 words from the end of Psalm 46, 46 year old Shakespeare's cryptic, mysterious way of telling us that he was part of the translation, translation committee of the King James Bible? I don't know. But stuff like this, when I discover it, fills me with wonder. It makes me smile. I want the same for you students. When you confront mystery in college admissions, high school, or life, when, you, when your why question is unanswered, embrace the mystery, keep moving ahead, and look for the wonder. It'll make you smile. If you've enjoyed this and other College App 101 podcasts, please share them through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or my website. Until next time, I'm your pre-college advisor, Dr. Riley. For more information about succeeding in high school, college apps, visit my website, collegeapp101.com. That's college, C-O-L-L-E-G-E, app, A-P-P, 101.com.